The scripture reading this morning is Job chapter 3, and it can be found at page 418 of your pew Bibles. Job laments his birth. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that, that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breaths that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who will never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the word of the Lord. And keep your Bibles open to... Job 3, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a sobering chapter to lay our eyes on this morning. And yet here it is in your word. Thank you that your word speaks to every aspect of life on this earth. And we pray, God, that this morning you would give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and hearts ready and willing to be changed by the truth of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think for a moment about your greatest fear in all of life. The thing that you, you know, I'm not talking about spiders or public speaking or tight spaces or anything like that. The thing that you fear that were it to happen would make you question whether life was still worth living. 
that kind of fear? What is your greatest fear in life? I want you to really think about it. It's a bit of a morbid question for a Sunday morning. Um, but what is it? Is it, is it doing something? Is it uh, experiencing something? I think for many of us, it's probably losing something. You know, losing a livelihood, a reputation, someone or something precious to us. So think about what is that, that thing you fear that were it to happen, you would wonder why you're still alive. And then consider, what do you do if that fear comes true? That is what Job has experienced in this story. It's exactly what has happened to him. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. We looked at chapters 1 and 2 of Job last week and, and began to follow his story. We saw his worst nightmare unfold. In a single day, he lost everything precious to him. His entire fortune, his family, all ten of his children uh, in, in one catastrophic accident, gone. And then in another day, he lost his ability to function. He lost his health. So his entire world falls apart. Now, we know that Job's suffering was a test. He didn't know that. He still doesn't know that in our story. Um, But we know that his suffering was a test to see whether his integrity was as true as God claimed it was, or whether the only reason that he worshipped God was because of what he got out of it. When Job was introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 1, the author wanted to highlight two things about him. First, his prosperity and wealth on the one hand, but then more important than that, his character and his integrity. He was a man blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But that character was put to the test when Satan accused Job before God, suggesting that the only reason that Job walks in this so-called upright character is because of what he gets out of it from you, his personal interest. If you remove your protection, if you remove the benefits of your relationship, he will curse you to your face. That was Satan's accusation. And shockingly, God does it. He removed those things. He allowed Satan to strike Job without reason, not once, but twice. And more more shocking still was Job's response in both cases. We saw a man whose integrity was what God said it was. We saw a man respond in true grief, but also true worship. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Job showed us that God is worthy of our worship, whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand. Now, had the story ended there, in chapter 2, verse 10, which is as far as some of us ever get in reading the book of Job, uh, had the story ended there, we would have been left with what feels like a rather two-dimensional character. 
Job, the stoic hero, unfazed by the worst that this world can do to him, a man who feels more like kind of a, a stained glass window picture in a cold church than real flesh and blood. But that isn't where the story ends. In fact, this story is about to take us into some of the most uncomfortable territory in all of Scripture by asking a question that most of us are, are too afraid to, to utter out loud. Is it better to die or never have lived than to face such misery in life? Just because Job responded righteously and with integrity and refused to curse God doesn't mean that he was not devastated and completely undone by what happened. The struggle is real. Not in a cliched hashtag way. In a real gut-wrenchingly honest way. As pastor and author Christopher Ash puts it, this is not armchair theology. Philosophical musings on the causes of suffering and experiences of suffering from a safe distance, just kind of theoretical. This is not armchair theology. This is wheelchair theology. Wrestling with suffering as one on whom your greatest fears have come. Right in the midst of it. When Job's friends show up in chapter 2, verse 11, they, they hear what's happened. They come to show sympathy to him and to comfort him. When they see him with their own eyes, they're completely taken aback by the scope and scale of his suffering. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. His suffering was so real that there are no words in the human vocabulary worth uttering in order to try and comfort him. Nothing you could say to make this easier. And so they sit there with him. So what will Job do when he finally opens his mouth in chapter 3? What do you do when your greatest fear comes upon you? When the thing you dread befalls you? Chapter 3 is Job's answer to that question. This is what he says. This is the voice of suffering. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. So, so note first, Job does not curse God. Job does not curse God. But he does curse his own existence. That's how broken and miserable he is. He curses his own existence. He calls down God to curse and destroy his very existence. Now, I mean, you read something like that and you're like, can you actually say something like that to God? Is that okay to think that, let alone to, to actually say it out loud? Uh, 
this okay? Is this really in the Bible? Do you think about it, what else can you say in that situation? You know, what we find here in chapter 3 is what we call a lament in the Bible. The Bible's full of laments. It's this cry of utter despair, of raw emotion, giving voice to the real pain that he's experienced. There's no sugarcoating the situation. There's no platitudes here, no putting a good face on it, trying to kind of buck up and look good for his friends or anything like that. This is raw, unfiltered self-expression, and it's right here in the Bible. And as an evangelical culture today, we're not really often sure what to do when we read laments like this. It feels a little bit too honest, a little bit too transparent. I think part of the reason we're uncomfortable with them is that, you know, we've made it our goal as a, as a subculture very often to, to kind of create uh, this, this kind of space that is, quote, safe for the whole family. We want to focus on the positive things of the Christian faith, on all of the benefits it brings us, which is not a bad thing entirely until the world falls apart and you're left reeling with some of the stark realities of life in a fallen world and you don't have a category to deal with them. Sometimes we feel these things are just too honest. Some of us have grown up in contexts where you can't really say anything about God unless you're sure that your theology is 100% right. Because you don't want to say something that's going to make God look bad, and you certainly don't want to say something that's going to make you look bad. And so if I don't have it right, if it isn't packaged and pristine, I better not say it out loud. And so I just don't feel this freedom to say what I really think or what I really feel when I'm wrestling. Now, theology matters. We're going to see that big time in this book. Uh, Theology meaning what we believe about God. What we believe about God, whether that is true or not, that matters. But when you're doing theology from the wheelchair instead of the armchair, you're not as worried about getting it right the first time. You're doing theology not to put on a show, not so that people will think well of you or impress others. You're doing theology because your life depends on it and your life is hanging in the balance. That's the kind of theology we see with Job right now as he laments. And so, so Job is not just a model of faith in suffering like we saw last week. He's also a model of honesty in suffering. In fact, you know, if, if, if we had time, we're, you know, we're doing kind of a, an overview of the book of Job. We're covering it in five uh, weeks. But if we had time to read through each chapter and each dialogue, you would see that Job embodies the whole range of human emotion and grief when someone's world falls apart. Loss of appetite, Job 6-7. My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. I can't even eat. Sleepless nights, 7-4. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. He longs to go back to earlier days before the tragedy struck, chapter 29. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me just wants to rewind the clock. 
loneliness, feeling abandoned by family and friends, despite their best efforts at comforting you. Chapter 19, he says, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. He feels abandoned by God. Chapter 30, verse 20. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you'll only look at me. And that feeling of being abandoned by God can easily turn to cynicism toward God. Chapter 9, verses 30 to 31. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, you will, you will plunge me into a, a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. If, if I were to even try, you would just trip me into another hole. And then finally, longing for death and escape from the pain. Chapter 3, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? If you have grieved in this life, if you have suffered uh, deeply, if you've lost a loved one, lost a livelihood, lost your health, then you are probably familiar with any and perhaps all of these different kinds of experiences. This is real stuff. And Job shows us that we can be honest with God when we experience this kind of pain. He does not muzzle our complaints or silence our cries. But it's this last reaction that I mentioned, this longing for death. That's what Job starts with. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth when he finally opens it. This lament raising the honest but uncomfortable question of wouldn't it be better to die or to never have lived than to go through what I'm going through right now. And so I want to look together at this poem, this lament, and consider the question that Job raises here as he suffers. So first, if you, as you look at chapter 3, first we notice that what we have in here is a little bit different kind of writing than what we saw in chapters 1 and 2. There was much more of a narrative story. Here we have a poem, almost like a soliloquy. Uh, this is a, a speech that Job is giving here. And, and as a poem, he uses a lot of imagery to get his point across. Specifically here, the imagery of light and darkness. You heard that over and over again as Adam read the passage earlier. The darkness of death that Job longs for wherein he hopes to finally find some rest, versus the light of life that's usually a good thing in the Bible, but here he feels trapped in it, and it offers him no rest but only trouble. And this poem he divides into three sections here, or we can divide it into three sections. The first part, verses 3 through 10, is a curse. It's this extended curse on the day of his birth. He's calling down every imprecation he can think of, to, to, to curse the day of his birth. And then the next two sections, he turns from a cursing to questioning. He asks two questions related to that curse. First, why did I not die at birth? That's verses 11 to 19. And second, why am I still alive? Verses 20 to 26. So this is happy stuff here. This is real stuff. And so look at the, the first, look first at the curse with me, verses 3 to 10. Let the day 
parish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. That is his overarching desire right now. This is his main wish, that the day of his birth would just vanish. The whole day just ripped away like it never happened and therefore he never existed. And then he elaborates on that wish in some pretty colorful ways. First, he wants it removed from creation. Verse 4, the phrase, let that day be darkness. In verse 4, that's an echo of God's first act of creation, only in reverse. God first said, let there be light. This is the same phrase, only let there be darkness with respect to that day. He wants his day ripped from creation as though it never happened. He wants creation undone so that his birthday might never exist. Second, he wants God to ignore that day. Middle of verse 4. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. I want God to ignore it, and if God ignores it, no one else will be able to see it. And so he continues, verse 5, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. How many different ways can he say, let that day be swallowed up into utter darkness and despair? And then he wants it stricken from the calendar. Go in, take your scissors out on whatever that birthday was and just remove the whole thing. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Instead of that birthday being a, a, an occasion for joy upon his birth, let it be a barren and joyless day. Verse 7. And then he brings out the big guns. Verse 8. He wants Leviathan, a mythical creature who, who represents the forces of chaos that work against God's created order. He wants Leviathan to break forth from the deep and swallow up that day and, and curse it wholly. It's almost like the picture if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean where they summon the Kraken and it comes up and swallows it. That's what he wants to happen to his birthday. Someone has come up and suck it down and gone. And then finally, Job wants the darkness of that day to be unending. He wants morning never again to rise upon it. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Now, the overkill of this curse would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. And so so deeply does Job despise the day of his birth and his existence that he will pile curse upon curse upon curse, wishing its utter destruction. Why? Verse 10. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. His logic is very simple. If I had never been born, I would have never had to face any of this loss. That would have been preferable. I wish that would have happened. The whole thing is so jarring. You know, birthdays are something we celebrate, you know. It's the balloons and the cake and the presents and all that. It's a happy day. But the pain of Job's situation is such that all of the, all of the memories of watching his children grow up, the savor of every meal he's enjoyed... 
all of the, the comfort of his vast possessions, it would be better to have never experienced any of that than to have tasted it and now lost it. That's his cry. That's his heart. But of course, he can't go back and erase that day. He can't curse the day of his birth. And so his curse turns to questioning in verse 11, still chasing the same point that wouldn't it be better to be dead than to suffer like this? And so verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? If, I, if I'm going to be conceived and be born, then why couldn't I have at least died right then and there? Or verse 16, why was I not hidden? Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Now, if you've lost an infant or experienced miscarriage or had a stillborn child, Job's words feel pretty insensitive here. Nobody would wish that experience on their worst enemy. He seems just kind of calloused. But he's, he's coming at it from a completely different angle. The angle that some of us ponder when we say things like, do I really want to bring a child into this messed up world? You know, some of us have asked that kind of question or, or you know, we've, we've wondered, it, is it worth it? Because there's so much pain and suffering in this world. Do I really want to? And so in that same logic, we think what well, those who are not born are better off than those who are. That's the angle Job is processing this from. Compared to the suffering of this world, he sees death as a place of rest. There you'll find kings and princes alongside the wicked and the weary, all free from their troubles and the toil of this broken place. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. Now, Job doesn't seem to have a very developed understanding of the afterlife. Uh, that's something that God revealed progressively as the scriptures unfolded. Uh, from his vantage, the risk of loss and suffering associated with life is worse than the rest that death would provide. That's what he can see. And so wouldn't it be better to die young than suffer so much in life? Why wasn't I? Why didn't I die after I was born? But of course, he didn't. He didn't die young. He was conceived. He was born. He, he didn't die at birth. And so now he comes to the final question of his lament, then why am I still here? Verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. What, an, what a reverse of every funeral you've ever attended. You know, digging for the grave as though you're looking for buried treasure as opposed to laying to rest your, your, your love. It's such an upside-down picture, but that's the level of pain he's experiencing. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? You notice how, how what Satan saw as an advantage to Job in chapter 1, Job sees as a liability. God has hedged him in. 
he doesn't want that protection anymore. He wants God to take the leash off and just let this world do its final worst to him. Let him be destroyed. Why? Verse 24. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the voice of suffering. God does not silence our cries of despair. For Job, it is raw, it is real, and it receives no answer in this chapter. It's just left hanging there. In fact, for the next 34 chapters, Job's complaint will go unanswered by God. His friends, who have so far been sitting silently with him, will try and answer his complaint. They will try and fail, as we'll see next week. As Job just continues to long for an audience with God, that he might understand what in the world is going on. Where are you, God? And eventually, he will receive that audience with God in chapter 38, where God will answer him, but not the questions he's asking. And so this is the long haul for Job. This is just the start of his journey. But what can we say about that question this morning? I feel like it's something that we need to think about. Where, wouldn't it be better to die or never have lived than to face this much misery in life? That is a real and honest question, and it's a critical question I think we all need to wrestle with, especially in a day when, when suicide rates are up at a 30-year high in the U.S. Assisted suicide is becoming increasingly acceptable in our culture, Abortion continues to prevail over our culture. This idea that death would be better than life if life's not easy or if life is filled with raw misery and suffering, we need to think about that question. And we need, it's a question we need to answer for ourselves before crisis strikes. Because in the heat of sorrow, it's so much harder to see clearly. And so in looking at Job 3, is there anything in this chapter that might help us answer Job's question of whether it would be, of whether death would be preferable to life when suffering is so deep. And I think there are two things that must be said, uh, one of them from this chapter and one of them from the larger biblical story. So first, is there a sense in which God has already answered Job's question here in chapter 3? And I think that the answer to that is yes. God has answered his question, is death better than a life of misery? The fact that Job is still alive is God's answer to that question. The fact that Job is still alive is God's answer to the question of whether death would be preferable than face so much suffering. And that is critical to remember. 
Life and death are in God's hands, not in ours. He's the one, we're told in the Psalms, who determines our days and years. If it were better for Job to die, God would take him. The fact that he hasn't suggests that as deep as Job's sorrow is, God is not done with his life. But the critical thing to remember is that whether to live or die is not Job's call. It's God's. He's the only one who has the wisdom and perspective to know when that day is. It's not something he asks us to take into our hands. It's something he has securely in his. Now, you cannot fault Job for asking. He's not the first person to long for death in the face of sorrow, and and he certainly isn't the last. I mean, even within the scriptures, you think of Elijah, who sat under the tree after what felt like him to be a failed misery against uh, against Ahaz and Jezebel and and the the cult of Baal that was dominating Israel. And here he was, the last prophet preaching the truth, and it wasn't working. Just take me. I'm done. It would be better to die than to keep doing this. Or you think of Jeremiah in a similar situation. Even Paul, who despaired of life itself amidst the trials of his ministry. 2 Corinthians 1. Just this past week, I listened to an interview with Wheaton College uh, President Phil Riken, a godly man, gifted pastor and leader, talking about his own struggle with suicidal thoughts. I mean, the temptation is very real. But it's not our call. We don't have enough information to make that call. Only God has the wisdom to make that call. And being convinced of that makes all of the difference when you're faced with these kinds of questions. When Carissa's family was here a couple weeks ago, um, some of you had a chance to meet our niece, Leonie. Uh, Many of you prayed for Leonie uh, before she was born several months ago. She was diagnosed with severe hydrocephalus while she was still in the womb. Uh, Nobody knew whether she would even live. And with that diagnosis came all sorts of pressure from the doctors to abort her. She's going to have a miserable life. She will suffer all of her days. You don't want that for her, do you? Wouldn't death be better than a life of misery and suffering? That was the question posed to her. And of course, no parent wants their child to face a life of misery and suffering. You don't want that. No one wants to see their child hurting. What carried Caitlin in a way through that pregnancy was the conviction that it's not their call. It's not their call. Whether to live or die was not in their hands. It's in God's. Now, they still don't know the extent of Leany's disability, and they won't probably for another couple of years. But here, that's the baby whom the doctor said her life wouldn't be worth living. She's beautiful. 
Life and death are in God's hands. They're not in ours. We don't have enough information to make that call, and we don't have the responsibility to make it either. God has. We don't know all that God is going to do or or is doing. It's his decision, even in the face of great suffering. And Job understood that. It's interesting to go back through chapter 3. Never once does he threaten to take matters into his own hands. He is completely deferent to God. Why didn't you kill me? Why don't you kill me? But he never stops and says, okay, if you're not going to do the job, I will. Life and death are in God's hands. He does not silence Job's cry. But life and death are in the hands of God. So that's the first thing. Um, we need to understand from, from chapter 3. The second thing that needs to be said as we think about this question is that our suffering, no matter how raw, no matter how deep, how devastating, our suffering is not unfamiliar to our Savior. It is not unfamiliar to our Savior. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. One of the most moving passages in all of Scripture is when Jesus takes up the lament of David, the lament of Israel, the lament of all suffering people, as he cries out from the cross, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Think about that. Jesus, more than anyone else, knows what it's like to suffer unspeakable horror and pain. He knows what it's like to lose everything precious to him, to be abandoned by his friends and family, to wrestle with God in prayer. He knows what it's like. He, more than anyone else, knows what it's like to have his heavenly father turn his back on him. That's what happened in that dark hour as God poured out the full weight of his holy anger against all sin and evil in this world onto his precious son who willingly took that in our place. He knows. And why did he do that? Why did he share in our humanity and and take his suffering and make it his own? Hebrews continues, since therefore the children, that's us, therefore the children share in flesh and blood, they're humans, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong death slavery. What is your greatest fear? What is the thing that if it were to happen would would make you wonder if life is no longer worth living? Whatever that is, you no longer need to be enslaved to it because Jesus has defeated it by taking death and defeating it. It no longer has power over us. We no longer need live in fear. The worst that it could do, it did to Jesus, and he overcame it in our place. And so we have hope. 
The cross and the resurrection are God's answer to every lament uttered by his people. He hears our cries. He does not silence our cries of despair. He hears them and he answers them through Jesus. Continuing in Hebrews 2.17, he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, our high priest, advocating for us to make propitiation for the sins of the people, forgiving, atoning, clearing away our sin. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is not unfamiliar with your suffering. He knows what it's like, and therefore he is uniquely qualified not only to rescue you, but to help you right in the midst of it. We have a faithful high priest. And so God doesn't silence our prayers. He doesn't silence our cries of despair. Neither does he ignore him nor them. Instead, he answers every single one of them through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. The one revelation tells us who died, who is alive forevermore, and who holds in his hands the keys of death and Hades. He's got that covered. And so do not silence your cries when suffering comes. God can take it. But to live or to die is not your call. That's God's. And he will always make the right decision. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word takes us to places we would not go willingly on our own. But you and your wisdom know what we need to see and to hear. You know the questions we need to wrestle with, and you have answers, God, to our deepest hurts and longings. And I pray, Jesus, this morning, I pray, God, that you would enable us, free us to give voice to the dark and hurtful cries of our heart, to not be afraid to utter what we believe, what we think, what we feel, to be true and real with you, to, to no longer feel like we have to put on a show. God, give us the freedom to be honest in suffering. And yet give us the hope that reminds us that there is one who's familiar with our suffering. He is able to help, and he alone holds the keys of death and Hades. Give us hope in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.